This morning's message is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 34. And the title for this morning's message is With Fear and Trembling. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 34. And God says to us this morning through his word, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. Join me in a word of prayer. Our gracious God, Holy Father, we pray that as we wrap up this so important section regarding the Lord's Supper, and as we walk through this very strong and fearful warning that is given to the church and, and to the world, to both believers and unbelievers alike who may walk through the doors of a church where the sacrament is being dispensed. Father, we pray that we would take these words to heart, that we would not read them as... Uh, uh, silly children's uh, stories that we tell to frighten our children into behaving properly. But we pray that we would read these words as they were intended to be read, as the very words of God spoken to His people for our protection. We pray, Lord God, that You would, by Your Holy Spirit, enable us to understand Your Word rightly to apply it to our lives. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> as, we, uh, as we read through the Old Testament, you know, particularly um, when the first time you read through the Old Testament uh, as a young believer, uh, you may have been struck by how often God smites people down. I mean, you, you, you read through the Old Testament, and the first time I remember reading through it, I thought, wow, I mean, it's just like left and right. You know, he's just smiting people down. We read about the Great Flood. I mean, that's early on, where God destroys the entire world. I always find it interesting that, you know, parents always want to decorate their children's rooms with Noah's Ark and cute little animals. When the reality was, that would have been a horrific event to experience and to live through. Because undoubtedly, 
the world would have been filled not just with sinful men and women, but with children, infants, toddlers, old people who could barely get out of bed. God destroys all of them. Sodom and Gomorrah. Two entire cities. I mean, we still debate, and it's a legitimate debate, whether or not it was ethical for us to drop the atomic bomb on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Was that the right thing to do? But we know that when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, it was absolutely the right thing to do because God, in His divine wisdom, always judges justly. And God is sovereign. God always does what is right. Nevertheless, these were two cities filled with men, women, children, toddlers, infants, and old people. He destroys Pharaoh. Right? The exodus from Egypt that brings him through the Red Sea. And I know we all think, yeah, but Pharaoh deserved it. I mean, he hardened his heart. He wouldn't let them go. Right? I mean, time after time. What a moron. He deserved to die simply because of his stupidity. But what about the Egyptian army? These were just soldiers doing their job. They just signed up. They just enlisted. God destroys all of them. Well, what about the story that we read in 2 Samuel chapter 6 of poor Uzzah? Here's a guy who is trying to do the right thing. And, you know, first of all, their first mistake, if you understand uh, your Old Testament, if you studied your Old Testament closely, the Ark of the Covenant was the throne of God. And like every king in the ancient world, if the throne was going to be moved with the king sitting upon it, it would be carried. No respectable king would ever allow his throne to be put on the back of an ox cart. And that's exactly what they did. And that was their first mistake. But that wasn't Uzzah's fault. He's just doing his job. The cart starts to stumble. The ark starts to slide. What would you do? Gah, stop the ark. Don't let it fall. This box is gold and glittering with jewels. He does what anyone would have done. Don't let it fall off the ark. And at that moment, God says, I have had enough. And he strikes Uzzah dead. And we read that and we sometimes think that's a bit harsh. Even David was upset. But that was the throne of their king. Even today in England, I mean, no one would ever think if King Charles was sitting upon his throne and there's there's an audience and there's reporters and there's people there. Could you imagine a commoner breaking out of the crowd and walking up to the throne of King Charles as he is sitting on it because he wants to touch the throne and go, wow, that's an amazing piece of furniture. First of all, he wouldn't even make it halfway because of security, right? But even if he did, the very thought would be abhorrent to the British people. Who do you think you are? to approach the throne of King Charles and to lay your hand on the very throne that he is seated on. What is wrong with you? I mean, England hasn't beheaded someone in hundreds of years or something like that, but they would probably think about it at that point. The ark. 
It's the very throne of God. And for Uzzah to lay his sinful hand on it was to disrespect the king. Thus, some come away thinking that the God of the Old Testament does not seem like the God of the New Testament. They seem very different. We read the New Testament, it's all about love, grace, mercy, Jesus healing people. And he, boy, they seem so different from each other because God doesn't do that anymore. Or does he? We quickly forget about King Herod in Acts chapter 12. As he's addressing the people of Tyre and Sidon, he puts on his royal robe, if you remember the story, and they all start, start shouting. They're so impressed with his image. They're so impressed with his voice. We are hearing the voice of God. And Herod just absorbs it. Oh yeah, voice of God. The Bible says an angel of God struck him dead. And it specifically says because he did not give glory to God. He robbed God of his due glory and God said, I have had enough. Or how often we forget about Ananias and Sapphira who deceived, attempted to deceive the church by pretending that they had sold their property for a certain amount and they would given it all. Look at how wonderful we are. Never the mind that they were holding back. And Peter says, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? And God strikes Ananias dead. And then they bring in his wife, who perpetuates the same story. And God strikes her dead. There's an important lesson there on women following their husbands to do the wrong thing. But that's a sermon all in and of itself. We easily forget that the God who thundered from Mount Sinai, commanding the people not to touch the foot of the mountain, Exodus chapter 19 and 20, God is their king, and at that moment he is using Mount Sinai as his throne. That's what all the lightning and the thunder is. The king is seated upon his throne. He is using Mount Sinai as his throne. He is about to issue the laws of the new nation that is being formed. And he tells Moses to tell the people, don't let them touch the foot of the mountain. Why? Because this is my throne. The same God who struck down Uzzah for touching the ark is the same king of kings in the Old Testament which is the same King of Kings in the New Testament. We too easily gloss over passages like Romans chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, or I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Keep in mind, I'm reading from the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship, listen, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I love the old King James, which says, with reverence and fear. Because our God... The God of the New Testament, the God we worship today, the God who died on the cross for our sins, our God is a consuming fire. Yet today, many churches render to God whatever kind of worship they fancy. 
believing that, you know, God should just be thankful that we're here. He should just be thankful that we're worshiping Him. Too often, you know, this is driven by the fact that we understand, particularly as Protestants, that justification is by faith alone. Thankfully, right? We are saved not by what we do, not by how we worship. We understand that we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone. Thank God. But shouldn't our love for Christ drive us to want to worship Him in a way that pleases and honors Him? That's why I wrote my book on worship. Because God does require us to worship Him in a specified manner. And we dare not approach Worship. We dare not approach the throne room of our King. We dare not approach the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in any way that we want. Thinking that, well, God should just be happy with the sacrifice of worship that I am giving Him. Because too often Christians make the mistake of thinking that what God wants foremost from us is the sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of worship, right? And that's what we give God everybody. It's a sacrifice to get out of bed on Sunday morning. It's a sacrifice to get myself dressed. It's a sacrifice to get the kids ready, to drag them to the car, to drag them to church. God should be happy with the sacrifice of worship that we give Him every Sunday morning. But that's not what 1 Samuel 15.22 says. 1 Samuel 15.22 says, To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed him is better than the fat of rams. You see, the message that we get from the stories like Uzzah the message that we get from passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 32, that we are going to be reading through this morning, is this. It is not about, worship is not about how you feel. Worship is about what God demands. And so here, Paul is going to wrap up this very important section on the Lord's Supper with a very strong word of warning to the church then and to the church today. Beginning in verse 27, he says, Whoever therefore, therefore, in light of what the Lord's Supper is all about, which he just talked about in verses 23 to 26, right? We looked at that last week. And if you're, uh, if you're curious, the sermons are online. I would encourage you to go back, particularly... The section on the Lord's Supper beginning in verse 17 and to listen to those two sermons leading up to uh, today. But he just finished talking about the significance of the Lord's Supper, what it means, why we do it. And so he says, whoever therefore in light of this truth 
in light of what we are doing in the Lord's Supper, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, listen, will be guilty. Will be held culpable by God concerning the body and the blood of Christ. What does he mean by unworthy manner? We need to define our terms, right? Because we don't want to just, we don't want to engage in eisegesis here and just read into that phrase what we think it means. We always want to get our definitions from Scripture and from the immediate context. So what does he mean by unworthy manner? Well, it's what he talked about back in verses 18 to 22. In verse 18, he specifically mentions divisions and factions within the church. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So any church that is partaking of the Lord's Supper, where within the church itself there are divisions, there are factions, there is infighting, people are battling against each other, people are engaging in intentional divisiveness within the church. That's what he means by an unworthy manner. Also, the beginning of verse 21, he says, For in eating one goes ahead with his own meal, and one goes hungry. In other words, selfishness and self-centeredness. To partake of the Lord's Supper, to approach the Lord's Supper, when there is selfishness and self-centeredness within your own life, within your own heart, within your own family, within the church, that is to partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. He then talks about at the end of verse 21, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. Lack of self-control. That's a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit according to Galatians chapter 5. And it's an important fruit of the Spirit because every sin that we engage in actually stems from a lack of self-control. People cheat on their spouse because they cannot control their sexual desires. People curse and they slander and they gossip because they cannot control their tongue. People engage in evil thoughts and they entertain evil thoughts because they cannot control their mind. People steal because they cannot control their covetedness. The lack of self-control is truly the root of all evil. And then at the end of verse 22, he mentions, What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? They are discriminated against the poor. They are not truly loving their neighbor as their self. They're giving greater honor to those who have money, to those who have wealth, to those who show up at the feast in the first century church with lots of food and the best bread and wine. And then, oh, there's Joe Snuffy over here who showed up again without anything. Though not every sin is listed, in verses 18 to 22, his point is that for a church to have rampant, unchecked, sinful behavior and then engage in the Lord's Supper is to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. It is to make a mockery of Christ because it is His 
Supper. It is the Lord's Supper. I believe this is what Jesus speaks to in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 24. There, Jesus says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, you're about to engage in an act of worship. Offering your gift at the altar. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Jesus says, stop, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't you dare engage in worship if there is unchecked, unrepentant sin in your heart, if you are harboring animosity towards someone else in your life, deal with that first before approaching the Lord's Supper because to do so is to partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And this is the point that Paul is making to the church. Don't you dare enter corporate worship and approach the Lord's Supper with unrepentant sin in your mind, in your heart, or in your life. To do so is to be guilty, Paul says, concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. But what does that mean? What does he mean by guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord? I think the most reasonable explanation can be found from verses 24 and 25. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup is my blood. To sin against the body and the blood of Christ, in other words is to sin against Christ himself. To sin against Christ himself. But I know we can all think, yes, but all, all of our sins against Christ. Well, yeah, that's true. They are. Every time we sin, we are sinning against Christ. Well, then what makes this different? Well, this strong warning then demonstrates the gravitas of the Lord's Supper. Approaching the Lord's Supper with unrepentant and unconfessed sin in your life is a much, much weightier sin than many other sins that we can commit against Christ. Because to approach the table of the Lord with unrepentant sin in your life is like the Israelites in Exodus chapter 19 attempting to touch the foot of the mountain when God had commanded them not to. To approach the Lord's Supper with unrepentant and unconfessed sin in our life is like Uzzah laying his sinful hand on the Ark of the Covenant. How dare you? To approach the Lord's Supper with unrepentant sin, unconfessed sin, unresolved sin in your life is literally attempting to take a seat at the table of Christ himself. What arrogance to do that. What pride, what foolishness to attempt to sit at the seat of Christ when you are not living your life 
for the glory of Christ. And thus Paul says in verse 28, let a person, let a person examine himself then, right? Therefore, then, in light of this truth, Paul says, let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It is imperative that each person ensure that he or she is in the faith and not harboring unconfessed and unrepentant sin in his life. For this reason, some churches practice what is called closed communion. And some theological terms for you to, to understand there are basically three ways in which churches practice communion. Closed communion, semi-closed communion, and open communion. Closed communion is when a church says only members of this church may partake in the Lord's Supper. There are churches that do that. There is some wisdom there. Because if you're visiting, they would say, we don't know you. We don't know if you're saved. And this is such a serious event that unless you're a member of the church where the elders have actually examined you, they've heard your testimony, they've, we've seen how you live your life, you cannot partake of the sacrament. Some churches practice open communion, which is foolish. And that is the Lord's Supper is available to whoever wants it. We'll just set it at the back of the sanctuary during the worship. I've seen a church do that. During the worship service, if you feel moved to go back and take the sacrament, it's back there. Treat it as though it is so insignificant. We'll just throw it at the back of the church. People can just walk back. Little kids can go back. They'll just rummage through there, grab a few handfuls of crackers. Foolishness. And then there's what is called semi-closed, or sometimes referred to as semi-open communion, and that is what we practice in this church. And that is that we allow the Lord's Supper uh, to be taken by anyone who believes that they are worthy of it, because it is the Lord's table, it's the Lord's Supper, it's not Grace Reformed Church's table. It is open to all believers, but what we do, what I do, is I fence the table verbally every week. Every week I remind everyone here that you ought not to take the sacrament if, number one, you're not a believer and you've not truly placed your faith in Christ. Number two, if you are a believer, but you know there is unrepentant, unconfessed sin in your heart, do yourself a favor and do not take the Lord's Supper. And I encourage parents to monitor your children because they are your responsibility. And if you're not convinced that they should be taking it, don't let them take the sacrament. And I take this approach of a semi-clothed because Paul doesn't command the elders to examine each person. He says, let anyone who eats, uh, verse 28, let a person examine himself. Paul says, examine yourself. Why? Because the elders cannot see in your heart. All they can do is hear your words. Only God knows your heart. And that's an important thing to understand. God sees your heart. You may be able to fool everyone else in the room, but you can't fool God. You ought not to approach the table in an unworthy manner. In verse 29, Paul will then explain the why. Why? 
Verse 29, he says, for. So there's the explanation, for. Here's the reason. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. The word discern, diakrino, in the Greek, means to examine closely, to pay careful attention to. Paul is saying, pay careful attention to yourself. Examine yourself closely. And if there is any doubt, right, the old phrase is better safe than sorry. If there is any doubt in your mind that you should be taking the Lord's Supper on any given Sunday, don't let pride get in the way. Don't think, I don't want to just pat because everybody's going to Why isn't she taking the Lord's Supper? Oh my word, what did she do? Better to face scrutiny from those sitting next to you than to come under the judgment and the wrath of God. So what does Paul mean by discerning the body? There's four prominent views on this. The first is that he is referring to the body of Christ. In other words, Christ himself. Without, without discerning Christ, without paying attention to who Christ is. Without contemplating who it is that the table that we are sitting at. When we talk about the Lord's Supper, who is that Lord? Who is Christ? What has He done for me? The second view is that Paul is saying that no one should take the Lord's Supper without realizing that you are actually eating Christ's body. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, the body that you're holding, you're holding the body of Christ, and anyone who does not recognize that they are actually holding the body of Christ is drinking judgment on themselves. Obviously, that is the view of Rome, which we disagree with. The third view is that Paul is referencing the significance of Christ's bodily sacrifice. That anyone who takes the Lord's Supper without recognizing the significance of Christ's body that was broken and crucified for us, who takes it flippantly, not recognizing what it represents, is drinking judgment on himself. And the fourth view is that Paul is referring to the body, the church, the body of Christ, without paying attention to the body of Christ, without discerning how do I relate to this body? How does this body relate to me? Are we in harmony with each other? Am I in harmony with them? Am I holding some sort of animosity against someone else in the church? Likely, I, thought, I think Paul means the last two. In other words, recognizing the significance of Christ's bodily sacrifice and discerning the body, meaning the body of Christ, the church. This is because he has just finished talking about Christ referring to the bread as his body. He broke it and said, this is my body. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we need to recognize that the bread and the fruit of the vine represent the body of Christ that was sacrificed for us. We ought to understand that. But he also makes the correlation 
to us being the body, and he correlates that to the bread that we take, back in chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, he says, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Paul was very fond of using that kind of language to talk about the body of Christ, to talk about the church. In Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. In other words, in taking the Lord's Supper, we need to, number one, be mindful of the body of Christ which was sacrificed for us and the weightiness of what that means. And number two, we need to be mindful of how we are treating the body of Christ. Believers, how we engage in one another. Are we on good terms with one another? Are we living in harmony with each other? Or is there division and factions and backbiting and slandering and gossip within the church? Because if we don't, well then there's verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. God has killed some of them. Because they've taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Some translations say fallen asleep, and that is accurate. That's more literal. The Greek word uh, koimao means literally to sleep, to go to sleep, to lay down, to fall asleep. So your, old, your older English translations, the King James, New King James, translate it that way. However, for believers in the New Testament, that word is consistently used for death. There's about a dozen times where the word uh, koimao is used with reference to believers dying and consistently, every verse I, I found in the New Testament, consistently, when it's talking about believers dying, it uses that phrase, fell asleep. When Stephen is stoned, it says he fell asleep. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, I'll give you just a few of these. 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 39, if a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, if her husband dies, she is free to be married. If her husband dies, that Greek word there is koimao. If he falls asleep, if he dies. But it's talking about believers. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 6, uh, for example. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though many have fallen asleep. Uh, verse 18 of that same chapter. Uh, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ uh, have perished. Well, he says, if Christ, let me put that in context, 
If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. He's saying if the resurrection didn't happen, then your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Then that would mean those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, fallen asleep in Christ. Again, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So we're talking about believers. But does this mean then that these persons were not saved? In other words, when we read that passage in 1 Corinthians, those who have fallen, those who have died in the church, are we talking about believers or are we talking about unbelievers who died because they took the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? Again, consistently, consistently in the New Testament, when the Bible talks about unbelievers dying, it uses different language. It never uses fallen asleep. Never. Not one time. A couple of examples. Herod, uh, Acts chapter 12 that I referenced, it says he was struck down by the angel. Ananias and Sapphira, it says they fell down and breathed their last. He fell down and breathed his last. She fell down and breathed her last consistently in the New Testament, when an unbeliever dies, different wording is used. When a believer dies, they have fallen asleep. Why? Because it's temporary. There's a resurrection. They'll be raised to the dead to true life. They will live forever on this earth with God for all of eternity. So I do believe that Paul is referencing believers. These were believers who were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, and some of them became ill, and God caused some of them to die. God does discipline His children. Psalm 94, verse 12 says this, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Blessed is the man whom you discipline. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Scripture says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves and a father the son in whom he delights. The author of Hebrews references this passage in Hebrews chapter 12 when he talks about the fact that if you are a child of God, know that God will discipline you when you sin because he loves you. He says, what father would not discipline his children unless he loved them? But fathers discipline their children because they love them and they don't want them to do wrong. They don't want them to go down the wrong path. So God disciplines his children when they sin. Thus, this can be avoided. Verse 31, Paul says, But if we judged ourselves truly, in other words, if we examine ourselves rightly and honestly, listen to what he says, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. By the way, the word judge in verse 31, both times and again in verse 32, is the same word for discerning in verse 29. Paul says, judge yourselves rightly and honestly, and God will not judge you. But when we don't judge ourselves rightly, what happens? 
Feast your eyes upon verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. We are disciplined. Why? Listen to this. So that we may not be condemned along with the world. Interesting. So that's what makes me think that these were believers. Because the reason Paul gives is so that they would not be condemned along with the world. God disciplines his children even sternly, even putting them to death so that like the rest of the unbelieving world, they will not be eternally condemned. In other words, God killing certain individuals within the church in Corinth, listen to this, was an act of mercy. It was an act of mercy. God saw that they were sinning gravely by coming to the Lord's Supper every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and God gets to a point where he says, this is enough, I am just going to take your life and bring you home. It's an act of mercy. It's an act of grace. That God shortens their life and brings them home. Paul now wraps all of this up with verses 33 to 34. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for one another. Be courteous to one another. Be generous and kind to one another. Act as if you actually love each other and defer to one another and serve one another. Or as Paul will say in Romans chapter 12, let love be genuine. Don't just say you love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Truly love each other. When you come together, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Paul is telling them that when they come together for the meal, because remember in the first century church, uh, usually Sunday was the only time they saw each other all week long. There was no such thing as a midweek study. They didn't gather at Starbucks and drink coffee together, right? They, 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 they were a farming community, a ranching and farming community. They didn't take days off. You know, cows got to be milked. The fields got to be plowed. Harvest has to be brought in. But they would take time on Sunday to come together. And so they would make the most of it. Travel in by wagon from five, ten miles out. Take a while to get to church. Let's not leave right away. And they would have an entire meal. And Paul is reminding them that when you come together and you have a meal as part of taking in the Lord's Supper, this is not a time for wild partying and debauchery and drunkenness. It is a time to celebrate what Christ has done for you, and it is a time to celebrate one another. Celebrate the church. Celebrate being a part of the covenant community of God. The Lord's Supper is to be taken with reverence and fear so that we will not come under the judgment of God. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper is tremendously important in the life and the health of the church. 
Because as we looked at last week in my message, the Lord's Supper is not just a memorial. It's not just a religious uh, rite that we practice. But in a spiritual and very real sense, we are supping. We are sitting down at the Lord's table and we are supping with the resurrected Christ. The Lord's Supper in that way and for that reason is a means of grace for our souls. For this reason, we need to come to the Lord's Supper with a clean heart. It's one of the reasons the liturgy is written the way it is, that there is a time of confession. There's your opportunity. Confess your sins before we get to the Lord's Supper. Repent of your sins before we get to the Lord's Supper. But the Lord's Supper is also su something that we need to take often. When we come to church, we come here not just to have our souls fed and nourished by God's Word or through the singing or through the prayers, but rather we come to church to have our souls nourished through Word and sacrament. In the end, the Lord's Supper is not just a religious ceremony we practice. But in the taking of the Lord's Supper, listen, beloved, in the taking of the Lord's Supper, we are elevated in a spiritual sense. We are elevated into the heavenly places. And we enter into the very throne room of our God and King. And we sit at the table with Him. And we feast. For that reason, we must always approach the Lord's Supper with fear and with trembling. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, Father, I pray that you would enable us each of us to examine our hearts rightly and honestly that we might not come under your judgment. I pray that you would enable us to be discerning of the body of Christ himself, that we would recognize and appreciate all that Christ has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection, and that we would not take that flippantly. We pray, Lord God, that you would enable us to be discerning of the body of Christ, this local body of believers. That we would strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That we would strive to engage with one another in harmony, in peace, and in love. That as a body of Christ, we may not come under your judgment. And Father, we pray that as we partake of the Lord's Supper that was given to us by your Son, Jesus Christ, as a means of grace, we pray that our souls would be nourished and edified and that we would be strengthened. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.